Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? And we're looking at verse 9 to the end of the chapter, but let's just read from verse 1 to see that in its context. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of His Word. Now, if you have been visiting the church today, or perhaps for the first time last week and today, you might might be forgiven for thinking that the pastor of this church is obsessed with the issue of discipline, church discipline. And I just want to point out that we're working through 1 Corinthians, and uh, this is the portion that we have come to that we're dealing with this morning. I hope we're balanced on this issue, and we're not obsessed with it. So, you'll remember then from our study last week that Paul had raised this thorny subject of church discipline with the Corinthians. It seems that a member of the church had been having an immoral relationship with his stepmother, and in the name of love, or perhaps in the name of liberty, the Corinthian church had refused to do anything about it. They tolerated this grievous sin within the fellowship, but not only did they tolerate it, they were actually proud about it. Paul says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. A sin so grievous that it scandalized the other churches and was frowned upon even within pagan society was a source of boasting in the Corinthian church. Well, Paul will have none of it. And he tells the church in verse 5 to call a church meeting and formally hand this man over to Satan, in other words, to put him outside the church. Now, from verse 9 on, Paul deals with the whole issue of discipline in a much more general sense, although he does refer back to the case of this immoral brother that was in membership of the church. And the first thing I want you to notice from our studies this morning is the the subjects of church discipline. Look at verse 9 and 10. I wrote to you 
in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul, it seems, had already written a letter to the Corinthians, what commentators call the lost letter or the previous letter, a letter that is not part of the canon of Scripture. And in that letter, he warned them not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, the Corinthians had interpreted that statement in completely the wrong way. They thought that Paul was telling them to separate from the immoral people around them. This word associate or keep company as the authorized version has it has to do with social intimacy and social interaction. And the Corinthians had interpreted that in such a way that they had isolated themselves from the world. Corinth was a very frightening and intimidating place for Christians with this proliferation of pagan shrines and the rampant promiscuity that was associated with those shrines. And so the Corinthians interpreted Paul's statement in his last letter to mean that they had to separate themselves, they had to isolate themselves from the world in a kind of a monastic, pietistic kind of way. Now, Paul says, I didn't mean that at all. Not meaning at all, he says in verse 10, the sexually immoral of the world. He says if that was to happen, you would have to enter some ecclesiastical super shuttle, be taken to an extraterrestrial monastic mastership, and there live. No, he says, I was speaking about the church, verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. It's the people who are immoral, who are in membership of the church, that you are to have no social intimacy or fellowship with. You see, there's always been a tendency in the professing church of Jesus Christ to withdraw and to isolate from the world. In the third and fourth centuries, Monastic orders sprang up and flourished where people tried to withdraw from the world and the evil influences of the world. Some took to living alone in isolated islands or in caves as hermits, and others retreated into monastic orders cut off from the outside world. There was a group in the 4th and 5th century who were known as the Pillar Saints, and they followed a man known as Simeon, and he began to live on top of a six-foot pillar, but he kept extending it and extending it until he lived on top of a pillar 60 foot high. And listen, he lived there for 47 years. Can you imagine it? 47 years. Not only is that a contradiction of the teaching of Jesus when he says, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, but it's also a contradiction of the incarnational ministry uh, or mission of Jesus when he came into the world to save sinners and mix freely with tax collectors and sinners. Paul says, you've misunderstood me when I said not to associate with sexually immoral people. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. It's there you must separate yourself 
from immoral people, like this immoral brother who was having this incestuous relationship with his stepmother. Now, of course, we don't have monastic orders with an evangelicalism, but we do have monastic mindsets. Some professing Christians who are horrified by the immorality and depravity of the world retire into an invisible spiritual monastic order. They don't want anything to do with the world. They have no contact with the world. They separate themselves off from the world. And the end result of that is that their light that is to shine before men shines only in that little narrow group of Christian friends that they have. Many Christians make monasteries out of churches, and although they don't live in them, the people that they associate with are the people that go to that church. And the sad thing is they justify that as a biblical position. Paul says the only way you're going to leave this world, to go out of this world, to have that kind of separation, is to die. Let me give you an illustration of that. A friend of mine who's a pastor got into awful trouble with his church because he managed an amateur football club on a Saturday. And because the team was predominantly Catholic and they were sponsored by a licensed restaurant, the church deemed this to be worldly. Even though three of the boys came to church and were converted, and the restaurant owner himself was brought to faith in Christ. But the church accused him of being worldly. Now, I think they would have accused Jesus of being worldly. In fact, they did accuse Jesus of being worldly because he mixed with publicans and sinners. The monastic orders are still alive and kicking within evangelical churches. Remember a, a man in Bethany, I had said to the church, now I want you to invite a special event. I want you to invite all your non-Christian friends to this event. And he came to me and he said, Stephen, I don't have any non-Christian friends. I don't have any non-Christian Because he had isolated himself from everybody who wasn't a Christian. And Paul is very clear on this. He says, you have misunderstood me. Of course you are to associate, verse 10, with sexually immoral people, with swindlers and idolaters. How else are you going to win them? Now, that's not to say we participate or give approval to their practices, but it does also doesn't mean to say that we withdraw from them completely. Jesus put it like this in John 17, in the world, but not off the world. He prayed to the Father, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So then Paul corrects this misunderstanding and says, when I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, I didn't mean immoral people in the world, but rather immoral people in the church like this offender. People who claim to be Christians, but they deny their Christian profession by the way that they live. It's the old picture of the boat to think of the church as a boat and the sea as the world, it's crucial that the boat is in the sea, but it's disastrous when the sea is in the boat. When we were growing up, we had a boat, and every winter we would pull the, the boat up from its anchorage, and we would place it on a trailer. And one day I arrived down at the boat, and there's my sister with a fishing rod 
over the edge of the boat at the edge of the water. No water. She was fishing amongst the stones. Well, how are you going to fish for men if you're not on the sea? I think that's a very important principle. Secondly, notice the ground for church discipline. As I said in our last study, one of the great problems with church discipline is knowing what sins should actually be disciplined. I met a man recently at a conference, and he was excommunicated from his church for disagreeing with the elders. Wouldn't that be good? But, but anyway, he was excommunicated from his church from disagreeing with the elders. I met another woman I knew quite well, and uh, she was excommunicated from her church for wearing trousers, not on a Sunday, but on a Saturday. I'm not quite sure what they would do with the believing women in China, but that's beside the point. And John Murray, Professor John Murray, was excommunicated from his church in Scotland because he wrote a little pamphlet that said it was all right to take the tram to church on a Sunday. Well, Paul lists some of the sins that are the subject or matters for discipline, and it's not an exhaustive list, but it certainly gives us the kind of things that he has in mind. Look at verse 11, but now I'm writing to you. It's interesting, I think, that two things, that all these sins actually are connected in some way to paganism and the pagan culture of Corinth and the pagan rites of Corinth, and also they are not one-off sins, but they are continual sins because the person is known as an idolater, a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. So, it's not just that they've slipped once into this kind of, of sin. This is a pattern of behavior that they're living by. But let's look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Here Paul lists six offenses that he deems worthy of church discipline. Now, they're quite comprehensive, covering sex, possessions, religion, the use of the tongue, drink, and money. The first one he lists is sexual immorality. The world in which we live has taken a good gift of God and has corrupted it and perverted it. It's not the use of the gift here that is being condemned, but it's the abuse of the gift. The Greek word pernina, from which we get our English word pornography, covers a multitude of sexual misdemeanors. All are unacceptable in the Christian church when the Bible says the marriage bed ought not to be defiled. Those sins call for discipline. Secondly, he talks about the greedy or covetousness. Now, we might be surprised that right in the middle of immorality and swindling, we find this word greed. But remember, it's the pagan culture, and it's people that are prostituting themselves to these shrines in order to gain financial influence and to gain for themselves a fortune, that they're sacrificing their faith in order to progress financially. So, Karl Marx, one of the things that he objected to in religion, and why he rejected uh, religion was that his father, who was a Jew, moved to a new part of Germany and converted to Lutheranism because he reckoned that Lutheranism would give him greater financial rewards, giving him greater financial 
contacts with the community. It's that kind of thing that's being condemned. An idolater, those given over to false gods that are, are worshiping the plethora of false gods that were in Corinth, the reviler. One commentator translates that as an abusive man. It has to do with the tongue, where you're verbally abusive. Drunkenness, the drunkard. Paul is not speaking of consuming alcohol, but being consumed by alcohol, getting drunk, intoxicated with alcohol. And in days when so many Christians are swinging away from the teetotalism of a previous generation, it's vital that the church needs to understand how sinful drunkenness actually is, that it can give rise to much of the other sins that are actually being listed here by Paul. I heard of a young Christian recently at university who decided that he would accompany his friends to the, the clubs and to the pubs uh, in order to witness to them. But he got so intoxicated that he had to be carried home by his friends, and it was his non-Christian friends that were disgusted by his behavior. Drunkenness is a sin that calls for church discipline. And then we have the swindler or the extortioner, and that word means to steal with force. Some translations render it as robber or carrying off with violence. So, here's a list of sins that Paul deems worthy of church discipline. The immoral, the greedy, the idolater, the slanderer, the drunkard, and the swindler. Now, notice all of these sins are serious, scandalous sins. These are sins that bring the testimony of the gospel into disrepute, and the church must take action because of the testimony of the church. A church that tolerates sin will lose its testimony. Now, Paul in other places lists other sins like blasphemy, like divisiveness, like heresy. But all these sins are grievous sins. They're public sins. And what I think we need to grasp is that they're unrepented sins. This man that we were talking about last week had his father's wife. This was an ongoing relationship that he had. It wasn't something that just happened. He was persevering or persisting in it. Those are the grounds for discipline. Scandalous, public, and grievous sins. And the action then that's taken, notice what Paul says at the end of verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. That line is really taken out from the book of Deuteronomy when Moses lists various offenses and he says to the people of Israel, you must purge this evil from among you. Now, the way we do that in the new covenant is excommunication. It's to remove them from membership of the church, where you put the offending brother or sister outside the membership of the church. Remember, Paul in verse 5 calls the Corinthians to hand this man over to Satan. And then in verse 2, he says to put him out of the fellowship, be removed from among you. 
If a man or woman is not living up to their profession or deny that profession by the way that they live, they ought to be removed from the membership of the church. The church is a society of professing Christians, and if they no longer profess or deny uh, that profession in the way that they live, they should be removed from the church. And it's painful. It's difficult. I was talking to a pastor during the week, and I was telling him what I was preaching on, and he says, have you ever done it? Have you ever done it? So, this kind of discipline is rare. It's rare. I think in my ministry, I've only done it twice. Brought the recommendation to the church that people would be removed from membership. But it is rare. And I think we need to be at least taking the Word of God seriously when it comes to remember public sin, scandalous sin, and unrepented sin. Now, that brings us then to our last point, and I want you to notice the response to church discipline. So, what are we looking for in church discipline? And the answer, very simply, is repentance. Church discipline is not a punishment. When I was out in Peru, I was on a panel, and I was asked these questions about church discipline, and the Peruvians were saying, well, how long do you think that a person should serve for adultery? They were looking for a sentence like, oh, 18 months for adultery. Premarital sex, how, how long a sentence should you apply? Stealing, how long a sentence? But that's not the issue. The issue is not how long they serve outside the church. It's that you look for repentance. So, I was at a church a couple of weeks ago, and a girl came up to me who was on one of our youth teams in Balamuni in the early days. And as a young woman, she got pregnant and got carried away one night. She became pregnant, and she went and told the church, and the church banned her from the Lord's table for nine months. You mustn't come to the table for nine months. They never asked her, was she sorry? They never asked her, was she repentant? They just imposed the sentence, nine months, you mustn't come to the table. After nine months, after she had the baby, they went to her and said, you can now come back to the table. And they never asked her, was she repentant or was she sorry? You see, the issue is repentance. It's not a punishment, it's repentance. Now, I want you to turn just to Matthew chapter 18 for a moment. Matthew 18 this well-known passage, Matthew 18 and verse 15, where our Lord mentions the church. Our Lord only mentioned the church in two places, uh, Matthew 16, when He said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and Matthew 18, when He speaks about church discipline. I think that's significant, church discipline. So, Matthew 18 and verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So, you, you go. Don't go and tell the pastor. Don't go and tell the elders. You go. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So, at that point, if he repents, you forgive him. It's done and dusted. It's over. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, well, if he does listen, what do you do? If he repents, you forgive him, and you carry on, done and dusted. That's it over. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
Now, he doesn't tell the church at that point to take action. He says, tell it to the church. So the church is informed, and the church pursues him, and the church calls him to repentance. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So at every stage, the opportunity is given for repentance. It's not a sentence to be served. It's a call to repentance. And then in verse 21, remember, Peter, overwhelmed by this, says, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, the rabbis taught three times. So, Peter shouldn't hide. He's seven, saying seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Do you see what he's saying? What our Lord is teaching that the goal in discipline is always repentance, and as soon as repentance becomes evident, forgiveness must be extended. Aye. So, imagine that then that he doesn't repent and he's put outside the church. What should your attitude be to him? So, you remove him from church. What should your attitude be to him? Well, Jesus says, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Well, he mixed with them. He socialized with them. And he preached the gospel to them. He used it as an opportunity for evangelism. Now, it does say in 1 Corinthians 5, don't even eat with such a person or, you know, avoid such a person. But I think he's talking about people inside the church at that point. Once these people are put outside the church, you treat them as unbelievers, which means you bring the gospel to them and you try to persuade them of the truth of the gospel and their necessity of repentance. So, this whole idea of shunning, you know, that has been popularized by the Jehovah's Witnesses, that you, you won't even speak or eat with members of your own family, I think is as far uh, from the teaching of Christ as heaven is from hell. It's inside the church. So, so Paul and Titus says, warn a divisive person once, warn them twice, then have nothing to do with them. Now, he's talking about extending fellowship to them at that point. So, so look how 1 Corinthians 5 ends. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? So, when they're outsiders, you go back to the beginning of verse 9 when he says, I didn't mean that you don't associate with people of the world. I'm talking about people inside the church. Once they're outside the church, you socialize with them, you interact with them, you dine with them, you offer hospitality to them in order to win them back. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Do you see what he's saying? When they're inside the church, he says, you don't associate with immoral people. You let them feel the breeze, the coldness, the frostiness of being outside of Christ. Yes, you're nice to them. You're pleasant with them. You don't ignore them, but you don't talk about the deep things of God with them. 
But they realize that there is a change, that they have broken fellowship with the Lord and they've broken fellowship with the church. If they're unrepentant, you put them outside the church, and then Jesus says, you treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, you see them the object of evangelistic endeavor, and you do all that you can to bring them back and persuade them of the truth of the gospel. And this is a difficult subject, and I think it has been twisted, and it has been used and abused to intimidate people and to put people outside churches who disagree with the leadership of the church. Uh, That's an abuse of power. What we're looking for always is repentance. And soon as the, the person repents, then the forgiveness is extended. Do you remember David? For 18 months, he's groveling under the weight of his sin with Bathsheba and thinking, probably resigned himself to the fact that he's never going to have the intimacy that he once enjoyed with the Lord when he wrote all those glorious and beautiful psalms. I'm never going to experience that again. I'm just going to live in a state of barrenness. And then Nathan comes, and he tells them that little parable about a man stealing a man's sheep. And David explodes and bursts into rage, rage and condemns that man worthy of death. Now, death was there for adultery, but it wasn't there for stealing a man's sheep. It was a completely, complete overreaction. And then Nathan, with all the authority of heaven, says, Thou art the man. And David says, I have sinned. And immediately those words are on his lips. Nathan comes and says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Immediately, repentance was forthcoming. Forgiveness was extended. And we must never as a church fall into the trap of bearing grudges of distancing ourselves from people who once walked well with God and have fallen into sin. The moment, the moment repentance is forthcoming, forgiveness is to be extended. May God help us to follow His Word. Amen.